Tonight's top stories. Soviets done with Afghanistan calls it a waste of vodka. Yamashita's Yakuza yanks Singapore's surrender. French fries bores in Kimberley kitchen siege. And Tsiwok's Karl Konkwonit Arts and Tikon. And later in the program, a special report on the missing link between primates and politicians. Those are the headlines. Don't forget to tip your waitress. News bang. Slicing through the Gordian knot of misinformation. 1989. In a shocking U-turn, the Soviets have announced they're packing up their tanks and leaving Afghanistan. The nine-year conflict, known as the Cold War Part II, Electric Boogaloo, has come to an end. The war, which saw the Soviet Union face off against some blokes in dresses with AK-47s, left the region in ruins and set back relations between East and West by at least half an hour. One local man, Abdul Chukbar, said, It was like one minute we were herding goats. Next thing you know, there's a tank parked on my sister. Another eyewitness added, I blame Brezhnev for this mess. He should have gone to Specsavers. The withdrawal is seen as a major victory for the Mujahideen, who vowed to continue fighting until every last invader had left, or until they got bored, whichever came first. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Gorbachev was unavailable for comment, but sources close to him say he's relieved it's over. In 1942. On this day in 1942, the year of our Lord Attlee, a Japanese general by the name of Tom led his forces to victory over the Brits in Singapore. The Second World War raged on, with both sides slinging bombs and atrocities like it was going out of fashion. Yamashita, known as the Tiger of Malaya, due to his fondness for lazing around all day and eating leaves, had already conquered most of Asia Minor, or so he claimed in his dating profile. His men swarmed through Singapore like ants at a picnic, leaving only one choice for General Charles Pinker. Surrender or endure more puns about his name. Over 80,000 British troops laid down their arms and trousers. The largest capitulation since Churchill's last Christmas party. The Axis powers celebrated wildly, but little did they know that their days were numbered. Well, not literally, because that would be creepy. Audacious in 1900. On this day in 19,000, Major General John Tallyho French led a British cavalry charge to relieve the besieged town of Kimberley in South Africa. The Boers, or as they were better known, Dutch settlers with rifles, had laid siege to the diamond mining city for two weeks straight. Defenders within the town walls held out against all odds, surviving on a diet of stale biscuits in each other's limbs. The relief column arrived just in time, led by French himself, a man whose prowess on horseback was matched only by his success with women back at camp. Eyewitness accounts tell of a heroic scene as the Brits charged towards certain death or glory, depending on which side you were on. Bullets whizzed past like bees at a picnic, while horses neighed their last. One defender inside the compound said, It was blimmin' marvellous. I thought we were done for until we saw those lads on their nags. The Boers didn't stand a chance against such plucky determination and retreated into Velt never to be seen again. News bang, poking holes in the balloon of lies. Now here to bring you today's forecast, a weather report that's positively out of this world, is Shakanaka Giles.
Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a meteoric shower of drizzle, a nod to the Chelyabinsk Oblast event of 2013, a bit like Mother Nature's version of a cosmic light show, but with less injury and more umbrellas. Moving on to the Midlands, where the skies will be as grey as a Russian winter, with a chill that'll make you feel like you're in the heart of Siberia. In the north, prepare for a blustery day, as if the winds are trying to recreate the shockwave of that infamous meteor. And finally, in Scotland, the weather will be as unpredictable as a Russian roulette game. Expect a mix of sun, clouds and the occasional shower just to keep you on your toes. In summary, a celestial drizzle, Siberian chills, shockwave winds and a game of meteorological roulette. Keep your eyes on the skies and that's all the weather. Two thousand and three. The world took to the streets in two thousand and three, a cacophony of voices raised against the looming spectre of war. The Iraq invasion, a contentious chapter, sparked protests from millions worldwide. Opposing armed conflicts and championing peace, they marched in defiance of the impending storm. The United States-led coalition invaded Iraq in March two thousand and three, toppling Baghdad and establishing the Coalition Provisional Authority. By May, major combat operations ceased, yet American forces lingered until their eventual withdrawal in 2011. And now we turn to our reporter Brian Bastable for an analysis of the impact these protests had on global politics. Listen well, my voice is a shard of metal in your brain, a worm burrowing into the very fabric of your being. I'm here, somewhere in the chaos of battle. The sound you hear now is not an earthquake or some monster truck rally gone wrong. It's artillery fire, hundreds of tons of explosives tearing apart what used to be civilization. There are no civilians left here, only combatants and victims. Their blood mixing with the sand to create something new. A river that flows like mercury under the moonlight. Today marks 20 years since it all began. This madness we call war. Two decades ago today, millions around the world took to the streets shouting no more. They demanded peace and understanding. They wanted humanity to survive its own folly. But look at us now, crushed beneath the weight of our own ignorance and arrogance. A single spark could ignite a conflagration that would consume everything we hold dear. Family, friends, love, all turned to ashes by our blind hatred for one another. And yet still we fight on. Stupidity masquerading as courage. Rage disguised as honor. We kill because we can't think of anything better to do with ourselves. This isn't bravery or heroism, it's madness. Insanity given form and substance. So remember this day, February 15th, not as a celebration, but as a reminder of how far we've fallen from grace. And if you ever find yourself standing on the precipice between sanity and chaos, choose wisely. For once you step off that edge, there's no turning back.
1995, the world of technology was forever changed when Kevin Mitnick, a notorious computer hacker, was apprehended and charged with computer and wire fraud. His illicit exploits earned him five years in prison, but upon his release, Mitnick turned over a new leaf by establishing his own security consulting firm. This tale of redemption serves as a stark reminder of the ever-evolving landscape of cybercrime. And we turn now to our cybercrime correspondent Ken Shit for an in-depth look at the man behind the legend, Kevin Mitnick. Gather round, my rabble-rousing rascals, as we journey back to the halcyon days of 1995, when the internet was still a baby and computer hacking was a dirty word uttered only in hushed tones. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Kevin Mitnick, the prodigal son of the digital underworld, a man who made a living by breaching the most secure systems on the planet, like a cyber Pandora, unleashing chaos and mayhem at every turn. This son of a bitch, Mitnick, was the epitome of the digital menace, and the authorities had had enough. They swooped in like a pack of wolves, arresting him on charges of computer and wire fraud, a duo of federal crimes that would see him rot in prison for five long years. But Mitnick, the defiant devil that he was, didn't let a little thing like prison break his spirit. No, sir. Upon his release, he emerged from the shadows, a phoenix rising from the ashes, and started his own security consulting firm. Talk about sticking it to the man. Now I know what you're thinking. Ken, how can this guy be both a criminal and a hero? Well, let me tell you, my friends, in this digital age, the lines between good and evil are blurred, and sometimes the only way to fight fire is with fire. So, let's raise a glass to Kevin Mitnick, the master of the digital dark arts, a man who dared to challenge the status quo and make a difference in a world that desperately needed it. And remember, my dear listeners, in this ever-evolving digital landscape, we must all be vigilant, for the next Kevin Mitnick could be just around the corner, ready to shake things up and change the game forever. This is Ken Shit signing off and reminding you to always stay one step ahead of the curve, no matter how dark and twisted that curve may be. Oh. 1979 in a stunning turn of events, Don Dunstan, the former Premier of South Australia, has stepped down after a decade marked by progressive reforms. Dunstan served as Premier from 1967 to 1968 and again from 1970 to 1979, leaving an indelible mark on the state's political landscape. His tenure as Attorney General and Treasurer further solidified his influence in South Australian politics. As the fourth longest-serving Premier in the state's history, Dunstan was instrumental in ushering in an era of social liberalisation. Now Hardiman Pesto brings us more on this groundbreaking figure and his legacy in South Australian politics. I'm here in Adelaide, where a dark cloud hangs over Parliament House today. Premier Dunstan has resigned after over a decade pursuing a progressive agenda of reform. A dark cloud indeed, Pesto. Tell us, what prompted this sudden departure? Well, Martin... Sources say the Premier simply woke up one morning and decided he'd had enough. Ten years driving social change had taken its toll. Is that so, Pesto? He just woke up and quit? No scandal, no crisis? None whatsoever. The Premier has championed landmark reforms, decriminalised homosexuality, abolished capital punishment, 
established a Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs. By all accounts, he's departing politics at the peak of his powers for a quiet life out of the spotlight. I find that very hard to believe. A politician doesn't just resign for no good reason. There must be something you're not telling us. I assure you, Martin, it's all above board. The Premier simply feels, in his own words, it's time for new blood, fresh ideas. Though he did seem anxious to avoid any detailed questions when I spoke to him earlier today. And where exactly did this conversation take place? At the rear entrance to Parliament House. As the Premier was loading boxes into the back of a taxi. The rear entrance? That seems an odd choice of venue for the Premier to make a sudden unscheduled statement. Boxes, you say? That's right. He was removing his personal effects rather swiftly and may have muttered something about getting out while the going was still good. But I'm sure it's just the burden of office weighing heavily on him. Nothing sinister at all. Of course not, Pesto. Well, I'm certain the Premier's hasty. Midnight flit from office is entirely above board. We'll leave the good people of South Australia to judge for themselves, no doubt at the next election. Hardiman Pesto in Adelaide, thank you for that creative piece of fiction. Fact, Martin, absolute fact. If you say so, Pesto. News Bang, a glimpse into the future of truth. And now, Polly Beep, with a chronological jaunt through the annals of vehicular calamity and peculiarity. Drivers, fasten your seatbelts as we time travel to 2010. Two trains have collided in Halle, Belgium, causing quite the spectacle. The scene resembles a mangled mess of railway tracks and metal, as if a giant toddler threw a tantrum with his toy trains. 19 souls have departed this realm and 171 are nursing their injuries. It seems one driver thought red signals were optional, leading to this tragic pile-up. Now we're hurtling back to 1961. A Boeing 707-329, Sabina Flight 548 has met its untimely end on approach to Brussels Airport. 72 passengers and one unfortunate soul on the ground have bid farewell to this world. The US figure skating team en route to the World Figure Skating Championships has vanished in a cloud of mystery. Engineers suspect a tail stabilizer failure, but we're still awaiting confirmation. As we return to the present, we've got some bizarre traffic updates. On the M1, an escaped ostrich is causing havoc. Drivers are advised to keep their windows closed and avoid eye contact. The A12 is experiencing delays due to a giant game of twister spanning multiple lanes. Meanwhile, the M25 has been transformed into a roller disco with motorists trading their wheels for skates. And finally, the M6 has become a makeshift circus with a clown car pileup that's leaving drivers in stitches. Stay tuned for more peculiar updates. And remember, keep your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel, unless you're skating or juggling flaming bowling pins, of course. Lee. 1996. And now, to present the not-so-distant past of 1996, where Calamity reigned supreme in the skies, and space cadets couldn't catch a break, we welcome Calamity Prenderville.
Good evening, fellow space cadets. Today, we're taking a trip back in time to 1996, where the skies were filled with rockets and the ground was, well, let's just say it wasn't as lucky. Picture this. A Long March 3B rocket is all set to launch Intelsat 708, a telecommunications satellite. But things didn't go quite as planned. The rocket, instead of soaring into the heavens, decided to take a detour and crash-landed near a quaint little town called Zeyuan. Uh, but Calamity, what about the satellite? Well, my dear friends, the satellite fared no better. It was destroyed on impact, leaving behind a trail of debris and disappointment. No one knows how many poor souls were caught in this cosmic catastrophe. The numbers are as elusive as a unicorn in a snowstorm. Some say it was in the hundreds, others claim it was thousands. But one thing is certain, it was a dark day for space travel and the tiny town of Zeyuan. So next time you gaze up at the stars, remember this tale of British innovation gone awry. And if you hear a strange buzzing sound or see a sudden influx of teapots falling from the sky, don't worry, it's just another day in the wacky world of space travel. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off from our little studio in 2024. Newsbang, poking holes in the bloody balloon of bullshit. And in 1965... And in a momentous shift, Canada has unveiled its new national flag, the Maple Leaf. Replacing the Canadian Red Ensign, this fresh emblem showcases a red field with a white square at its heart and an 11-pointed maple leaf in scarlet hues. The first flag, to be embraced by both parliamentary houses and proclaimed by the reigning monarch, it stands as a beacon of unity and identity for Canadians. But what does this transformation signify for the nation's cultural tapestry? Smithsonian Moss delves into the heart of this intriguing tale. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Whoa-ho, my frosty friends and syrup-slurping savages. It's your favorite culture vulture, Smithsonian Moss, and have I got a tale that'll make you want to slap on some skates and apologize profusely. It's 1965 and Canada is like, out with the old, in with the new, eh? They're ditching the Canadian red ensign faster than a moose on a motorbike. So, look it, a sea of red with a white square smack dab in the middle. And what's that? Oh, just a cheeky little 11-pointed maple leaf. Because Canada's all about that leaf life, baby. It's like they took a piece of their sweet, sweet nature and said, let's make this bad boy our flag. It's the first flag to get the double thumbs up from both houses of parliament and a royal nod from the queen herself. Talk about a hat trick, eh? Now, the maple leaf flag is like the ultimate Canadian flex. It's more Canadian than a beaver building an igloo while chugging maple syrup and watching hockey. And let's pour one out for the old Canadian Red Ensign, that nautical number with more British vibes than a cup of Earl Grey tea at a cricket match. But here's the kicker. The Red Ensign was like that hand-me-down sweater from Great Britain. Cozy, but not quite cool. Canada was like, thanks, but no thanks, we're going full maple. And bam, they did it with style, grace, and a flag that's as bold as a Mountie's Red Surge. So, as we salute the maple leaf flag... Let's remember it's not just a piece of cloth, 
It's a symbol of Canada's sorry-not-sorry attitude to stepping out from the Commonwealth's shadow and into the spotlight. It's the flag that says, We're here, we're clear, get used to it, dear. And that's the skinny on the flag that's as iconic as Celine Dion hitting a high note while riding a Zamboni. Keep it sassy, keep it classy, and keep it a little badassy Canada. Waho, and good night. News bang. Lies, damned lies, and disappointing statistics. 11.13. In a dramatic turn of events, the year is 11.13, and Pope Pascal II has just let loose a papal bull. This decree recognizes the establishment of the Knights Hospitaller, a medieval Catholic military order. The bull confirms their independence and sovereignty. The Knights Hospitaller have headquarters in various locations throughout history, including Jerusalem, Rhodes, and Malta. To delve into the spiritual significance of this development, we now turn to our resident religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be back on the old wireless, regaling you fine folks with tales from times past. Speaking of past popes, tonight's historical highlight concerns one Pope Paschal II. Now, Pascal wasn't known for his sparkling wit or lively dinner conversation. In fact, he was a bit of a dour old stick in the mud who frowned upon frivolity and mirth. But he did have a heart for charity and good works, bless him. In the year 1113, Pascal decided to formally recognise a brave band of chivalrous chaps known as the Knights Hospitaller. This noble order of knights had devoted themselves to caring for poor pilgrims and the sick. They were known for their kind hospitality, which explains the hospitalaire bit. <laughs> now Pascal, being a cautious old bean, wanted to make sure the knights maintained their independence and didn't go gallivanting off on any unauthorised crusades. So he drew up a formal bull, a papal bull that is, confirming their sovereignty and granting them some prime real estate on Malta. The knights were chuffed as chips at having their own private island, made a nice change from getting saddle sores. <laughs> Paschal's decree ensured the knights hospitaller could carry on their good work without interference from meddling kings or overzealous cardinals. They were responsible only to the Pope, and the occasional dragon when funds ran low which reminds me of a joke about another group of crusaders who ran into a spot of trouble in the Holy Lands. <laughs> Seems a band of weary pilgrims were trudging through the desert when they came across an oasis guarded by a fierce Saracen warrior. Now their leader, Sir Royston, round table, Tennyson, was parched as a prune, but didn't fancy his chances against this burly bloke's scimitar. So he turned to his comrades and said, Right, lads! Looks like this calls for cunning over brawn. Our only hope is to confuse the blighter so one of us can sneak past and grab provisions. <laughs> they huddled together, whispering furiously until Sir Royston stepped forward and cleared his throat. You there, my exotic fellow. We come in peace, seeking only safe passage. The Saracen narrowed his eyes and gripped his weapon. Before we parley, continued Sir Royston, please answer us this. Is your mother's brothers, nephews, cousins, former roommates, aunties, half-sisters, stepdaughters, godmother's chiropractors, third cousin, twice-removed neighbours, dogs, veterinarians, sisters, piano, 
teachers, milkmans, opticians, patients, podiatrists, boyfriends, uncles, grandsons, friends, co-workers, nieces, pharmacists, ex-lovers, worms, breeders, owners, insurance agents, roommate, also your father's accountants, gardeners, doctors, patients, priests, housekeepers, friend, by any chance. <laughs> the poor Saracen stared in utter bafflement, buying just enough time for Sir Royston's squire to sneak past and secure provisions for the pilgrims. So you see, convoluted questions can sometimes outwit where steel fails. Pascal would have approved of their peaceful approach, I'm sure. Anywho, that's all for tonight, folks. God bless and mind the moat on your way out. And now, the final roundup of tomorrow's papers. The Telegraph, Grant seizes fort, earns no terms moniker. There's a drawing there of a stern-faced man. The Guardian, Castro takes the helm in Cuba, vows lengthy tenure. They've got a photo of a beard. The Times, Norwegian saboteurs halt Nazi atomic hopes. There's a schematic there of a factory. And that's the last blast from Newsbang tonight. Remember, tomorrow's weather will be mainly severe with widespread outbreaks of weather throughout the day. Good night, and may your news be as sensational as your dreams. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.